So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at ButcherBox.com conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. Hello, Conspirituality listeners. It's Matthew here. This is a special unlocked episode from our Patreon Early Access Swan Song series. We'll be dropping these periodically into our main feed. Thanks so much for your support. Welcome to an episode of a Conspirituality Podcast bonus collection, the Swan Song series, a tour through the paradoxes of Teal Swan, an influencer who embodies the tangled history and whiplash contradictions of our beat. This collection will be accessible first through our Patreon feed, but we will release each episode to the public over time in our regular feed in addition to our Thursday episodes. Topics will revolve around the method, the myth, the impacts and implications of one of the most unsettling conspirituality figures alive. Content warnings always apply for this material. Themes include suicide and child sexual abuse. To our Patreon subscribers, thank you for helping keep our platform ad-free and editorially independent. And to everyone else, thanks for listening, including followers of Teal Swan. We hope this is all useful to you as you consider your relationship to Teal's story and influence. Hello, dear Patreon subscribers. Welcome to Swan Song Series 7. It's a movie episode today. Girl Interrupted Part 1. Hello, Julian. How are you? Hi there. I'm good. I'm excited about this episode. And I just want to note that I'm uh, I'm still recovering from laryngitis. So every now and again, like we recorded an episode a few days ago, and every now and again, I, I'll hit a word where uh, I go a little hoarse. Right. <laughs> and I know that you're uh, you're recovering from a little bit of a cold. So we're, you know, we're slightly compromised in the audio recording uh, department. A little bit, but I have, um, I have my tea. Good. Uh, I have also I have chocolate, which is really good for this episode. I think um, great. There's actually I think this is good for your throat. Actually, I'm making that up, but I mean, uh, in my tea, um, I have condensed milk these days. Did you grow up with that? Did you grow up with that? You did, eh? Because because you're from the Commonwealth yourself, right? Yes. Condensed milk is a is a decadent treat. It's great. Yeah, you know, I started um, drinking it again after my mother died. She mm. passed away, and I think the next week, I just remembered it. I just remembered mm. that this is something that she loved. That it was a treat for her, um, and now, yeah. 
it's like it's I think it's a year year and a half later or more something wow. like that. Wow, it's yeah. it's funny. I haven't I haven't had it in about thirty years, but the the uh, the the association with the taste now that you bring it up is so it's so rooted in my uh, in my childhood and in a in a different place. You know, such a different culture. Yeah, I I, I used to love having condensed milk on toast. <laughs> yeah, that was a thing, right? You were you were heavy Commonwealth then. Yeah, and I also right. used to have uh, Marmite and Frey Bentos, right? Oh, uh, okay. Do yeah, you know no, those? I didn't. I did not. I missed out on those. It's um, more. It's m- more in uh, Australia. Is right. I, I think much more. Um, but but in England too, people in England love having Marmite on toast, and, and Americans who taste it think it's the most disgusting thing ever. But I love right. it. Right. Um, we want to. Give another shout out to Christina Flinders for joining us last time on our inaugural Listener Stories uh, series. We did two parts with her and we found her to be uh, incredibly lucid and generous with her story. And we hope that, yeah, and we hope that you all enjoyed it. Also, uh, thank you for commenting on it in the Patreon stream. I think that was very meaningful for Christina and and I think it gives her like a really strong sense of what she she might do with this material going forward, which I think is a really happy thing. So today, uh, a little bit of a different journey. We're going out on a limb and uh, we're going to jump in at the deep end here. So uh, we recommend that you listen to the prior series episodes first. And also, you know, you might even, especially after this first clip, you might want to pause this episode and go and watch Girl Interrupted uh, before going any farther. I mean, you know what? All of that, I think, is is good advice. And at the same time, um, hey, if you're just joining us, uh, enjoy the ride. There may be some references that you want to go back and figure out what we mean. But I think this is a a pretty unique episode. And uh, yeah, the movie movie material that we're getting into uh, just has a lot of richness. It does. Uh, Trigger warning here, uh, discussion of suicide. I mean, everybody thinks about it at some point. How would you do it? I don't know. I guess I haven't really thought about it. See, once it's in your head, though, you become this strange new breed a life form that loves to fantasize about its own demise. Make a stupid remark, kill yourself. You like the movie, you'll live. You miss the train, kill yourself. Susanna. What? Let's not talk about this anymore, okay? Why? Because it's, uh, stupid. What? What are you doing? Oh, what? Because I don't want to kill myself? That's not cool to you? I don't want to die. I was just talking. Look, Susanna, the world is fucked up, okay? All right, it's so fucked up that if, if some, some draft zombie pulls my birthday out of a barrel, I'm going to die. When's your birthday? 
December 30th. I'll pray for you. All right, so... Susanna. Yeah. Let's set the scene here, right? We're we're looking at and commenting on what was reportedly one of Teal Swan's favorite movies when uh, her and her friend Diana were teenagers. Right. It's Girl Interrupted. And in this scene, uh, Susanna Kaysen, who's played by Winona Ryder, and her temporary boyfriend, Toby, who's played, interestingly, by Jared Leto. So, are- inter- so interesting. <laughs> so interesting. What a, what a future he has, he has gone on to have. Absolutely. Right. They're bathing in the afterglow, naked in bed together. And then after he asks her to stop talking about killing herself, she's upset. She gets up to put on clothes and leave. Then he points out that his own fear of being drafted, that's that reference to his name being pulled out of a barrel, right? Because they did it by by lottery, makes the topic of death very scary in, in a real way for him. Um, and I feel like here we're getting a glimpse into her trying to share what she feels in terms of being somewhat set aside, set apart from other people by this preoccupation with suicide and a, a certain kind of emotional inner turmoil. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And she, you know, it sets the scene for us well because Kaysen is describing suicidal ideation as a kind of illumination. Uh, she says that you become a strange new breed. Uh, and against this, Toby kind of insults her with his legitimate worldly fears. It's stupid. And what, yeah, and what we have then is a real tragedy of these gendered ships passing in the night. Uh, You know, this young woman with no idea of what she's going to do and no place in society, as we will see, and this young man who feels that he is going to be thrown into the meat grinder. Now, later in the film, Toby's draft number does come up and Susanna actually watches it drawn during the lottery. She's watching the television in the psych ward at McLean, the hospital. Uh, and this allows the story to have Toby show up and offer to take her away as he draft dodges to Canada. He tells her that you know, his dad has given him $5,000 and he's got this car and they're going to be able to go up and, you know, start a homestead or something like that. We can build a cabin in the woods. Right. And, and he, again, though, he puts his foot in his mouth, uh, proving himself to be dismissive of not only her particular journey, but also of the friends she has begun to uh, mm. cultivate at McLean. Uh, at one point, I think. Wait, I don't think I don't think that's the name, Matthew. I think it's called Claiborne. Claiborne. Uh, am I? Maybe I'm mixing up the the actual hospital with mm. the with the um, oh, okay. fictional one. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll say we'll say the hospital. Um, okay. At one point, I think Toby says those those girls in there they're eating the grapes off of the wallpaper, and she's just disgusted at his mm. um, his callousness. Mm. Uh, and and that moment allows her to refuse his world, uh, to choose the hospital at least for the time being as the safer place, mm-hmm. and to find solidarity with other women who are finding their way out of this labyrinth of mid-century mental health care. 
Yeah, I mean, I, there, there is another angle on this too, which which to to make him not completely irredeemable, which is that he he also is saying to her, you know, I don't think you belong here. I don't mm-hmm. think that you're really quote unquote crazy, right? And there, that, that is there is a through line, I think, in this in this story of um, you know the the pathologization of what she's experiencing. Right. Well, and it comes up over and over again, even down to the vagueness of her um, diagnosis with mm-hmm. the sort of catch-all category of borderline personality disorder, which we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. And and you know what you're saying actually is is echoed by the head nurse, actually, or I believe I believe Valerie is actually a doctor uh, in the film, uh, not in the not in the book, uh, but played by Whoopi Goldberg. You know, there's a very powerful scene in which she says, you know, I think you're just wasting your time. You haven't figured it out yet. You need to get on with things and you have all kinds of advantages and so on. So, yeah, a good place to start, I think. Um, This film is released in 1999. Uh, So Teal Swan is 15 years old. It comes to VHS on January 1st of 2000. So I'm not sure whether they saw it in the theater or not. Um, but it's an adaptation of a memoir published in 1993 by a very good writer named Suzanne Kaysen about the 18 months that she spent undergoing treatment for borderline personality disorder in a Massachusetts psychiatric facility in the late 1960s. Now, the memoir uh, is praised to the rafters by all kinds of, uh, you know, literary Illuminati. Uh, And it stands as, and I I think it's very beautifully written myself, it stands as a field guide to the mental health landscape for women at the time. And it also includes an amazing cast of characters uh, who we'll get to. But um, the title, we should note, refers to a Vermeer painting uh, which is called Girl Interrupted at Her Music from 1660. And, uh, you know, it's as haunting as any Vermeer. Have you seen this picture before, Julian? I had not before you met, before you uh, included it in our research process, and it's absolutely beautiful. It has that really typical kind of sense of like being sort of in the muted shadows, but having the incredible, incredibly sort of represented light uh, playing on the uh, on the face of the girl, on on you know some of the uh, some of the warmer objects in the room. It's really really beautiful. Yeah, and and like with many of of Vermeer's sort of tableaus, I think it captures a moment of very quiet shock or or mystery or what is going to happen now. There's an incredible like this I mean this, the, the golden light is always pouring in at a slant and creating these mm-hmm. deep shadows but there's mm-hmm. also this sense that something critical is going to happen at this point and we're not exactly sure if it's safe or not. And now Kaysen, yeah, go ahead. Well, well hold on. I, w- I wanted to say about that, that there's, there's another aspect to what you're saying, which is that yes, it's a moment of shock and what might happen next, but there's also a sense that he captures in these kinds of moments. He, it's almost like he opens a little aperture for us into there's an inner life here. There, yeah, there are unexpressed right. emotions. There's, there's something happening behind the face that you're seeing, which suggests um, 
something quite intimate and and psychological. Yeah, yeah. And I, I wish I knew a little bit more about the history of art to know whether or not this is his particular uniqueness for the time. I mean, I know he's famous and his paintings have survived and so on, but that does seem to be, there does seem to be something very modern about this painting. Do you know uh, the time given, period? Uh, 1660. Oh, wow. Okay. Doesn't, so that, doesn't that feel like, doesn't it feel like it should be a 19th century painting? Yes. Yes. In the, and the sense reason- that in the, in the sense that it's like, it's, it's, it's disclosing a secret, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, and the reason I asked is because I was I was thinking about perhaps the the parallel development in in literature around you know a kind of first person character whose whose inner life you get to be privy to, right? Well, also she's the the character in this this painting is breaking the fourth wall. She's looking directly at the at, at the viewer and saying and saying, "What's going to happen now?" And are am I okay? Mm. Um, Kaysen writes about it in her memoir this way. Um, it's the painting from whose frame a girl looks out, ignoring her beefy music teacher, uh, whose proprietary hand rests on her chair. So that's the other figure we've kind of like blown over. We ignored him totally, uh, <laughs> but of course, you know, he's looming over her shoulder, and uh, he's he's courting her as well as te- as well as teaching her. The light is muted, winter light, but her face is bright. I looked into her brown eyes, and I recoiled. She was warning me of something. She had looked up from her work to warn me. Her mouth was slightly open as if she had just drawn a breath in order to say to me, don't. I moved backward, trying to get beyond the range of her urgency, but her urgency filled the corridor. Wait, she was saying, wait, don't go. Yeah, yeah. I think this is this is really interesting too because another of his very famous paintings, The Girl with the Pearl Earring, which has been the subject of several pieces of fiction, it was thought by many to be obscene at that time, precisely because of those same parted lips that are considered to convey some kind of unladylike sexuality or a kind of a loss of emotional composure. Oh, wow. Okay, so so what Kaysen is actually identifying as um, the attempt to convey uh, a, a, like a secret or some sort of urgent um, meaning to the viewer that was interpreted at the time in this other painting as being a sign of lasciviousness or a, a sign of, of, you know, uh, of lack of control. Yeah, perhaps, or perhaps we could also read it from the empathic angle of saying that this this represents the the sexual vulnerability of the of of the innocent who doesn't know yet that they have to pull their lips tightly together in this kind of pursed. Uh, performance of some kind of uh, piousness or, you know, control. Right. So Kaysen goes back 16 years later to see the painting in the same museum. And she's with a rich and uh, self-centered boyfriend. She writes, she had changed a lot in 16 years, the subject of the painting. She was no longer urgent. In fact, she was sad. She was young and distracted, and her teacher was bearing down on her, trying to get her to pay attention. But she was looking out, looking for someone who would see her. This time I read the title of the painting, Girl Interrupted at Her Music, interrupted at her music as my life had been, interrupted in the music of being 17 as her life had been, snatched and fixed on canvas, one moment made to stand still and to stand for all the other moments, whatever they would be or might have been. What life can recover from that? I had something to tell her now. 
I see you, I said. Such great writing. It really is, yeah. And I'm going to talk about a little bit about uh, the transition from writing to film because I think that's really important for what actually happens uh, um, in terms of its uh, potential sort of cultural impact and, and how that works its way into our, into our story and into the living room of uh, the Bosworths. So Cason's uh, memoir, you know, is this harrowing exploration of mental illness, um, whether it's correctly or incorrectly diagnosed, usually incorrectly, uh, whether it's treated with compassion or not, often not, and how that all plays out against the backdrop of uh, gender dynamics. And uh, the film adaptation is directed by James Mangold, uh, who also did Copland, Walk the Line, Wolverine, uh, and Logan. And it stars Winona Ryder as Susanna Kaysen. She's also one of the executive producers. So I can only imagine that, you know, I would love to just ask Ryder, maybe I should find, I wonder if there's an interview out there that describes her picking up the book or something like that. And I mean, that's a Mangold, right? That's extraordinary too, because this is yeah. early in her career. She's very I young. Know. And she so is she's very young. She's become the executive producer on this project because yeah. she really wanted to get it made. I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure it just really spoke to her. And uh, she, yeah, she drives an incredible ship here to, to get this done because it really comes together uh, in a beautiful way. And then we have Angelina Jolie, who gives a searing performance as the jaundiced sociopath uh, named Lisa. A career-making performance, right? Yeah, incredible. Uh, the budget for the film was $40 million. It grossed 48 at the box office. You know, I realized in doing this, I don't you know, study a lot of film. I don't know what it actually made in VHS rentals or sales, and I don't know where to find that. That would be kind of interesting to find out because that's how it gets to the Bosworths, actually. Um, it's important yeah. to note, yeah. Yeah, no, I think absolutely. I, I think that it probably made a whole lot more money than that on the other side of, of right. theatrical release. Uh, because mm -hmm. that's actually that's actually a pretty small profit on on forty million. Yeah. So um, the other two screenwriters here are Lisa Loomer and Anne Hamilton Phelan, um, and that's really important to note because the film deviates significantly from Kaysen's journey. Let me just give an example. We open with that scene uh, with Toby, um, but. It, you know, as it's played in the film, it just does not exist in the book. Um, there's a monologue that carries a lot of that internal poetry, but the interpersonal dynamism is not there. Cason, uh, in short, is not writing a driving narrative with this book. It is really a memoir of vignettes. So she writes, um, and this is where the material for the Toby scene comes, suicide is a form of murder, premeditated murder. It isn't something you do the first time you think of doing it. It takes getting used to. And you need the means, the opportunity, the motive. A successful suicide demands good organization and a cool head, both of which are usually incompatible with a suicidal state of mind. It's important to cultivate detachment. One way to do this is to practice imagining yourself dead or in the process of dying. Oh my God. If, there's a, if there's a window, you must imagine your body falling out of the window. Does this sound familiar, uh, by the way? <laughs> right? Yeah. If, if there's a knife, you must imagine the knife piercing your skin. If there's a train coming, you must imagine your torso flattened under its wheels. These exercises are necessary to achieving the proper distance. The motive is paramount. Without a strong motive, you are sunk. My motives were weak, 
an American history paper I didn't want to write, and the question I'd asked months earlier, why not kill myself? Dead? I wouldn't have to write the paper, nor would I have to keep debating the question. So what does this remind us of? Well, it's uncanny how much it sort of resonates with Teal Swan's treatment of suicide in uh, some of her really, really, uh, some of her YouTube videos that have been viewed the most. Right. Um, getting people, it's, it's interesting because there's, there's in this passage, what is being described is a way of becoming more sort of familiar and intimate with the impulse towards suicide so as to be able to go through with it. And the way that Teal frames it is that the way to be free emotionally is to imagine yourself uh, in the act of suicide uh, mm-hmm. as, as some kind, as some version of like, you know, de-repressing yourself or like going facing your shadow or something as a way to sort of become this heroic spiritual figure right and and i don't get that from Kaysen at all there's no heroism in her voice no um it is quirky it is eccentric um it you know, feels a little bit scrambled. Uh, and there's no sense as well that she's teasing you towards uh-huh. the particular event. Whereas, and I'll get into this a little bit later, because what happens as the medium changes from, you know, a literary reflection on, uh, you know, mental health issues to the you know, immersive, dyadic, parasocial relationship with Teal Swan, who's looking into your eyes and talking about what it would be like for you to commit suicide. Uh, the content seems to be similar, and yet the 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 container, the feeling, the the power of it is completely different and much more claustrophobic. Yeah, and in in that passage, it's very descriptive. She's describing a kind of depersonalization in yeah. which the horror of killing yourself is starting to become something that you're able to contemplate in this abstract way. Whereas uh, Teal's approach is much more prescriptive. Uh, This is something that you should do in order to, you know, get get whatever benefits I'm telling you, you will get from it. Right. I just want to point out one other thing. This is a little bit nerdy and might be reading a little bit too much into it. She says, my motives were weak, an American history paper I didn't want to write. I mean... On one level, she's it's it's reasonable. That is a weak motive. You don't want to write your university paper. Mm-hmm. But on another level, there's something else going on there, which mm-hmm. is like, I don't want to think about American history. Uh. Like, I just, I don't, I really can't stand. I can't yeah. stand. Because, because there's a lot of this movie that feels like it's standing on the edge of the end of history. Mm. Uh, What's going to happen afterwards? What's going to happen after we get out of this place? Um, whether it's the war or it's the asylum. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, here's, here's the rub, though. Uh, we are looking at this film because we heard one comment <laughs> in an amazing interview given by Diana Hansen-Ribera who uh, describes the following memory. 
There's these two neighbor girls. Um, they're both engaging in self-harm. They're both um, engaging in eating disorders. What happened to these girls? Why are they doing this? Um, and really, everyone was trying to understand. Like, I think her mom even, when we watched the movie Girl Interrupted with her, which is a very dark movie. Like, even to this day, I can't watch it without feeling horribly triggered. Um, she wanted us to watch that with her to kind of see that kind of see uh, mental illness. Um, and I think she thought we would really relate to it. And I don't know if the idea was it would be inspiring or maybe make us feel not as alone in some of these struggles, but, and Teal and I really had some parallels with that movie. Um, I was the Winona Ryder character and she was the Angelina Jolie character, the one that um, she was a sociopath and Teal loved the parallels between her and Angelina Jolie's character. It wasn't something I would, I would have, I struggled being the Winona Ryder character because I'm like a borderline personality. That's horrible. I don't want a borderline personality. And where she kind of, she didn't see some of those things as a negative where I saw them as a negative. She saw it as like a prideful thing. Like sociopaths are one of the more hardcore mm. illnesses. Um, She's like seeing herself in the character, it sounds mm -hmm. like. And kind of taking pride in seeing herself as the character, mm -hmm. which stands out to me now. We well, are what few. Stand, <laughs> yeah, what's, what stands out there for you? Now, well, Julia. right away it makes me think of later on, which we'll get to Angelina Jolie saying we are few and we are mostly male. Um, right. You know, that she does take, she does take pride in her diagnosis as a sociopath. And, and, you know, you hear Diana here kind of grappling with the, the, the power imbalance is not only there in the relationship with Teal, it's there in how the movie gets, um, <laughs> interpreted <laughs> right. right that you right. okay you're going to be the one who has this super vulnerable um yeah. confusing uh, intensely emotional kind of quote-unquote disorder and i'll be the one who who um totally flat on the surface of things appears to have more power right yeah and who will dominate mm -hmm. and who will as we'll see as we'll get into i think we're going to take two episodes to do this as we'll get into um, takes pride in pushing people's buttons, as she says, yeah, yeah, and provokes the most abject and horrible scene in the film, mm -hmm. and who also, however, is exposed at the end as being somebody who cannot actually exist outside of the confines of the hospital. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. it flips. There's something very tender about Teal Swan identifying with the person who in the end is not free because they can't or is not released because they can't actually gain a meta view uh, enough to be able to rejoin the world. But then there's also this ambivalence about, well, do you want to rejoin the world anyway? It doesn't, don't things make more sense in here? So yeah. really, yeah. really interesting. I just wanted to add that, that there's also a way uh, in hearing this quote that it all feels like a bit of a mess. I mean, you've got this sort of implication that Teal's mom thought the film would somehow be helpful to these two girls who apparently are starting to, you know, have 
these symptoms, right? Uh, uh, self-harm and, and eating disordered behavior. Who knows right. to what extent that was, that was the case. Um, maybe, she, maybe Teal's mom thinks this is going to be inspiring to them, or maybe it's a cautionary tale. We don't know, but here's this film in which there actually is a young woman who, who kills herself. Um, there's some really awful cruelty in the film. There's this role play game that we're then imagining of um, Teal and Diana seeing themselves as these two main characters, one of whom almost certainly, I would say, doesn't belong in a psychiatric institution, the other who's a really nasty sociopath of the kind we should hope never to meet. Um, it also plays to some extent as I, as I reflect, because we, we've talked about this before, like how do we imagine Teal's parents relating to all of this? And, and to me, it plays into a trope I've mentioned before in the spiritual subculture that often sees emotional instability as indicating some kind of, you know, really spiritual sensitivity. And, right. and then it goes further and perhaps sees mental illness as perhaps being in touch with a spiritual reality that the normies can't see. Uh, in this case, maybe being unbound by restrictive norms of society. And we, we've talked in, in a previous episode about the counter-transference, perhaps we could frame it as, the, of the relationship that Teal's parents seem to be caught in with her, in which she's this powerful and gifted golden child who is only troubled to the extent that the world doesn't know how to understand and support her specialness. Right. As so it seems to me like it, it could be part of that. I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's kind of sweet that her mom thought wow, you girls might take some comfort in a film like this that starts to get into these difficult and highly charged issues that I don't know how else to communicate with you about. But on the other hand, it's like, okay, this is, it's, it's a little twisted. Well, I think there, I understand the gesture and the impetus. And I think that it would have been, it might've been possibly generative and educational and maybe even salutary for you know, girls in this situation to watch this film, but there would have had to be a lot of space and time and conversation and guardrails and, and, um, and, and also the ability to compare it to other pieces of literature. Um, the, perhaps the, the, you know, pointing them towards the actual book because reading the book is a completely different experience. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that later. Um, but I just want to say that uh, in terms of the intensity of their engagement with the film, uh, by email, uh, Diana kindly responded to a bunch of questions that I had. Uh, and she told me that she recalled watching this a few times at least with uh, Teal and only once with her mom present, which was the first time that, that she saw it. Uh, she says that she's pretty sure that they owned the VHS and that it wasn't rented a bunch of times. Um, so she says, quote, I believe Mrs. Bosworth, AKA Bobby had good intentions by watching the movie with us. She discussed the beauty and depth of some of the characters, despite their mental challenges. Uh, there was some sort of discussion around the brutal treatments in the old psych wards and the ineffectiveness mixed with trauma from those treatments there were some discussions about shock treatment and lobotomy. I also think the movie was upsetting for Teal's mother, I can imagine. Uh, and the treatment options in our small town weren't great. So, 
Yeah, thanks, Diana, for for the clarifications. Yeah, I, I feel like just as a, a very quick aside, we should mention for anyone under thirty, there used to be these buildings where there were all of what were called videotapes, and uh, you could go into these buildings. You would leave your house, right, and you would go into these buildings, and then you would select videotapes of films God. that you wanted to watch, and you'd pay at the counter, and then you'd take them home. You'd put them into this thing called a VCR or a video cassette recorder that would then play them on your television. It was a different time. <laughs> yeah, and and you had to rewind them too, yes. or else there was a there was a two or a three penalty. dollar rewind fee. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And yeah, the gosh. What it was incredible that that was those those shops covered uh, blanketed yes. cities. Yes. Uh, and, and in rural areas, cause, cause I lived in rural Vermont and there was one video store like in a 20 mile radius. And that was, that became a meeting place, yeah. you know, to the extent that they, that they stuck totally. a cafe into it. Um, yeah. yeah. And they just totally disappeared. Yep. Completely disappeared. Overnight. Almost overnight. You know, they, they, yeah. there's one, I don't know if it's still there. I should go and check. There used to be one in Santa Monica called Vidiots. That was actually an incredible resource because it was all, yeah. all the movies were organized by director and by genre and, and, you know, there's a foreign film section and it was, it was, it was an extraordinary place to get lost in that world. Um, right. And then, yeah, seemingly overnight, uh, Netflix killed the, uh, the blockbuster star, right? But to go back from this uh, digression, this description um, of of what may have been happening at that time, especially in that part of the world for these young girls and 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 their families, it makes me think about what I often perceive as as a kind of huge gap, a huge cultural gap around how perhaps many parents think about psychology in relation to everyday life. You know, it's almost like. There's normal people like us, and then there's people with psychological problems, <laughs> like going to therapy is akin to having a serious psychiatric diagnosis. Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 I think of uh, my, my wife's uh, parents and how her mom has, has gone to therapy and it's, and it's been really great for her, but how her ex-husband, whenever she's... Um, being really emotional in, in a justifiable way will say, well, you need to go see your psychiatrist, right? That right. there's this, there's this real, um, uh, insulting kind of stigma that's associated with, uh, with, you know, having emotions. Yeah. Um, 90% of the time it's a misogynistic accusation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it makes me think too of, you know, one of, one of the famous, uh, one of the famous lines from Pink Floyd's, um, movie and album, The Wall, uh, you've been found guilty of having feelings, feelings of an almost human nature. This will not do. <laughs> you know, call the schoolmaster. He's going to say how you always were mentally unstable. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's like, it's like um, melancholy or even depression is automatically framed as this scary, abnormal thing that we don't know what to do about, as opposed to seeing emotions and even existential dread or normal identity crises that we go through at different stages of development or even trauma symptoms as actually being entirely commonplace and something that makes sense in the real world and can be addressed and worked through in ways that yes actually can provide maturity and insight but 
perhaps not through some kind of radically intense hero's journey, right? As, as we see in the film and, and as we'll see with Teal Swan's later formulations for her followers about what it means to deal with your, with your psyche, right? Um, I, don't, I don't in any way mean to minimize what these two girls may have been going through. But what I am saying is that a good therapist probably really would have helped here, maybe after watching the film. And I don't mean the Barbara Snow kind of therapist. Yeah. And when, to be fair, the Bosworths do say that they went to many, many clinicians. But of course, there's always luck involved with that, right? Yeah. That's a roll of the dice. Yeah. So, okay, we have this report from Diana. We both love this movie. Uh, it's, it's incredibly evocative. We're going to be making a lot of connections here. There's going to be a lot of digressions, uh, all coming out of this like one piece of evidence. So how are we going to make sure we don't go all, um, what should we call it? Like, uh, girl interrupted pill on this stuff <laughs> like all apophenic like we don't start seeing a whole bunch of connections that are not really there because we're just sure. caught up yeah, in how it, it be, rhymes yeah, yeah well, because 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 we like the sound of our voices <laughs> I mean look for me I feel like this needed to be an attempt to fit the movie onto Teal Swan's life in some sort of direct correspondence we have some interesting information shared by her childhood best friend who she now denies uh, about what this film represented to them and how they identified with the main characters. But there's plenty to talk about here. And I, I think, um, you know, w with regards to Teal and Diana, there's a kind of informed speculation that we're doing. But beyond that, I think we're looking at a film from a particular time period that's also set in a different time period earlier, uh, a couple decades earlier, that has all, sides, all sorts of rich cultural layers and hopefully, if a good chunk of our listeners have watched it recently, we can just see where this goes together, because I think it's, there's a lot to reflect on. Yeah, and just to reiterate for those who are wondering why we aren't just labeling Teal Swan a cult leader and calling it a day, um, a lot of that is just established, and it's kind of boring at this point. Uh, we know that she has a non-credible origin story of satanic ritual abuse. We know that she's been giving out trashy psychological advice, mainly to vulnerable women for years in unboundaried online forums. We know that a number of people have uh, in her, in her circle have uh, died by suicide uh, under conditions that are, that are not fully explored. We know there's, an in real life inner circle of people who are all suspiciously uh, carrying recovered memories now as well after having been with her for a number of years. We also know that she's ambitious and that she makes a lot of money on a dodgy and paradoxical combination of sex appeal and moral panic. And we know that she frames all of this in terms of spiritual awakening and insight. We know that the juice behind this is really the lifeblood of conspirituality, that uh, everything that she brings to the table is crucial for you know people's uh, awakening, but also the awakening of the world. But the point of this series is to explore why all of that is so appealing and uh, what this culture is that made her possible. Because, you know, 
I think that's that's where it's at. That, those are the questions that that we're left with in the end. And I just want to say that on a personal level, uh, I think that that these episodes are my act of rebellion against my own disciplinary blinders. Uh, years of coming to the end of a discussion about a group or a leader by quoting you know cult theory and just you know uh, having a beer. Um, you know, that kind of thing, I'm just a little bit bored with. It's limiting. It puts the subject matter in a kind of box. I don't think we can understand Teal Swan if we believe that she's someone uniquely definable outside of the culture as a whole. I don't think that we can put her into the cult box and really have a satisfying understanding. So I would say that just Teal is a kind of kaleidoscope, uh, a Rosetta Stone for the many themes that spin out from the conspirituality wheel. Yeah, that's that's well said. I think that's a good summary of, of what this has been evolving into and, and, I, and a really good insight about what it represents to you. I think that one thing we can say that came out of the deep end, this uh, Hulu series on Teal, is that no matter how you interpret the deceptive, you know, allegedly deceptive editing and Teal's claims that Casby and co manufactured a kind of Frankenstein narrative for their climax by, you know, patching together different things. Like even if she was right about all of that, it's really hard to not come away from watching her interactions, her affect, her statements about herself and, and still see an unusually pronounced narcissism. And for sure, for sure. So one of the reasons I think humans, intuitively find that level of narcissism scary as I think is also clearly visible just in the raw footage of how her inner circle deals with her when she's uh, upset or feels challenged is that we can sense in someone like that a kind of ruthlessness, a a, a self-serving quality in which empathy is potentially used in manipulative ways, that there's a palpably simmering rage when the power dynamic is challenged. Um, And that when amplified further, that narcissism has qualities that we might associate with sociopathy or what, what, you know, used to be called psychopathy. These terms change over time. And so the, the incongruity between outer circle idealization and then this inner circle experience that suggests abusive dynamics and an insistence on tightly controlled power. It's very familiar from other instances of cultish groups. But I think that for me, one of the things that's happening with this series is we're following some hunches that perhaps I'll just wonder out loud about right now. I think maybe because of her generation, So meaning her age, because she's a woman, because her fame and fortune are discovered first through the wounded healer trauma pathway, and because her success is so driven by YouTube, so this is a digital phenomenon, because her version of a lineage is much more satanic panic and alien channeling than like Kashmiri Shaivism or Vajrayana Buddhism, right? We we see her as representing something really different culturally than this earlier generation of gurus who rode the East-West boomer Gen X counterculture spirituality wave like we did, right? 
the, the backstory of psychological distress and then self-identifying with an Oscar-winning depiction of a sociopath in a film that is very much about women in America during, as it turns out, the same period that the boomers who would maybe have gathered with Maharaji in the Houston Astrodome would have been dropping acid and becoming convinced that Maharaji was God on Earth. This is a different turn of that kaleidoscope. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that and and also you know two, two things it feels like uh, teal encountering this movie when she's 15 allows her to be a little bit of an amateur historian and to find uh, some very attractive themes that she is probably already chewing on uh, embedded in the past in a way that is probably natural for her to think about okay well you know, how does this play out now? Like, how do these stresses, uh, how does, you know, uh, psychiatric co- coercion happen now? Uh, how do I relate to this? I think it's, it's, it's immediately, the film is immediately given to a kind of instant um, cultural updating for the really um, interested young viewer too. Uh, and, and yeah, you would, she would end up, she would end up seeing it through her contemporary lens. So, um, you know, let's just start with the opening because we're speaking about kind of nostalgia and culture, aren't we? Time it was and what a time it was, it was a time of innocence, a time of confidences, long ago it must be. I have a photograph Preserve your memories They're all that's left you Have you ever confused a dream with life? Or stolen something when you have the cash? Have you ever been blue? Or thought your train moving while sitting still. Maybe I was just crazy. Maybe it was the 60s. Or maybe I was just a girl. Interrupted. Yeah, so everything in the opening is pitch perfect. Um, Bookends, Simon and Garfunkel. Maybe it was the 60s. Maybe I was a girl interrupted. Um, the Simon and Garfunkel comes from 1968. That's the that's the year setting of Kaysen's book. Um, so yeah, how does this hit in 1999? Um, they they have to be watching this and knowing that they're watching their own parents, right? Mm-hmm. That they're watching their 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 the the. Their, their boomer forebears. Yeah, I mean, um, one thing that as I was listening to that, I was reminded of because I was picturing the scene in my head is, and, and it just comes to me now, given your analysis of the Vermeer or, or reporting on, on uh, Suzanne's analysis of the Vermeer, is that when she says the name of the, of the movie, maybe I, maybe I was crazy, maybe it was the 60s, maybe I was just a girl interrupted, she looks 
she breaks the fourth wall and looks right at, at us as she says it. With oh, that you're same, right. With the wide eyes. You're and it's, right. it's the same wide eyes that are on the movie poster. Right. So they really, they really dug into this idea of what the girl in the painting um, has to do with uh, perhaps this whole story. But I, I must say, I, I have such a soft spot for Simon and Garfunkel. You know, my mother had the live in Central Park double album and we listened to it on quiet Sundays or rainy afternoons. And if you're under 30, there used to be these things called records <laughs> <laughs> that had a big fold out cover with beautiful photographs. And it was really, it was, it was a, a kind of artifact, something that you, that you got to hold on to and look at and relate to while you were Hold on now, hold on now. I think though, I think there's a lot of Zoomers who are getting into vinyl, aren't they? Don't they know more I, about that shit than we do now? Well, I don't know, man. Right. I don't know the the record collections that we had growing up that we got to dig into from our parents. It's it's a different experience. Um, mm-hmm. I, I love digital music. I'm not I'm not a luddite, but anyway, we would listen to this on quiet Sundays or rainy afternoons. And bookends is such a beautiful, melancholic, poetic song. To me, Paul Simon may be the greatest songwriter of all time, but we can debate that um, elsewhere. That opening really sucks you right into the first person sense of being young. And just wondering, like, do are are is what's going on inside me really just evidence that I'm crazy, right? Mm-hmm. That we, you know, it's it's that uh, somewhat banal observation, but I think it's insightful that we we compare our insides to other people's outsides. That we have this uniquely first person experience of our own inner world, and we often wonder, like, is anyone else going through this? I certainly had those kinds of troubled thoughts as a teenager. And you yeah. know, when, when we think about this time period, you and I were discussing this earlier, you have people, and we think about the time in which the movie is released. You have mm-hmm. Fiona Apple, who I think would have been right at home as a character in this film and, and has been very open about her troubled background, her trauma. Right. You have people like uh, PJ Harvey and Courtney Love who are expressing a really like strong edge at, at this time of, as, as female sort of um, icons. You have Alanis Morissette, who's hugely, hugely popular. And, you know, if you think about her first huge hit single, it is it is such an amplification of what, you know, some people might describe as borderline rage, that really hurt rage that is searing and he- really preoccupied and wanting vengeance. Right. And I hope you think about me when you, scr- when you scratch, uh, she scratches her nails down your back, all of that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh my gosh, right. Yeah, actually, no, that's, that's inverted. Anyway, there's 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 a lot of vengeance going on in, in those there, lyrics. There's, there's scratching. There's rage. there's some uh, scratching yeah, that happens right. that has some emotional significance. There, there's, and there's sort of there's growling. Yeah, there's there a whole, there's a whole uh, grunge era of of women's music that just still makes my hair stand on end. It's so it's incredibly an, powerful and beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And at the same yeah. time, you have Sarah McLaughlin that's much more airy and emotional. And you have the Lilith Festival, which was at the time very heavily kind of praised for being this music festival that featured uh, a lot of female artists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, McLaughlin could go pretty hard too. Um, but anyway, I mean that that I actually followed up with um, Diane about their music landscape, and 
she said that they weren't actually music people, really. Huh. That they stuck to things like Enya. Sail uh, away, they, sail they, away. That's right. They they listened to the they listened to the cranberry singing zombie, uh, but they had a very low tolerance for loud music. Ah. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, but that opening, uh, it's a um, what do you call it? It. Uh, it's 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 not a recapitulation, but it's a it's a it's a foreshadowing of the end. It's actually the end of the film, which uh, is a where, very novelistic thing to do, right? You start at the yeah, end, right? Uh, with Susanna cradling Lisa after the climax, um, the whole thing cast in the glow of the acoustic guitars, uh, and then it plunges right into uh, Susanna's uh, cause for being uh, committed to the hospital, which is her suicide attempt. And then it goes, there's all of this timeline bouncing actually in the first 20 minutes. That's quite beautiful because it goes back and forth between uh, her adjusting to her time at the hospital uh, and the sort of precipitating incidents. But we, we have this very clear scene where she has her first meeting with uh, a psychiatrist as she is being committed by her parents um, and the psychiatrist is coming out of retirement. He says he doesn't really do this anymore. He says he's a friend of the families um, and she's just pressed in on all sides uh, because she has uh, made the suicide attempt with aspirin and vodka. And we get this immediate sense that the entire framework for the hospital is a kind of psychiatric coercion. Um, she's not even told uh, what's going to happen. Her mother has already packed her bag and you can see her taking it out of the back of the car out the window of the psychiatrist's office and she transfers it to the cab without even saying goodbye. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when she sees her mother taking the suitcase out of the, out of the trunk, she says, what, what is my mother doing? What is my mother doing? And right, no reply, exactly. right? right. We, we haven't yeah. sprung the surprise on you. And then when, when the doctor, when the, when the psychiatrist or whatever he is, walks her to the cab, it's, it's like a perp walk. I mean, he's right. got her by the upper, he's just holding that upper arm and he's guiding her to the cab. Yeah, and mom is sitting in her sedan kind of weeping at mm-hmm. the steering wheel. Uh, this is necessary. There's nothing to be done. Uh, and then she gets into the cab and this scene is mirrored in the end as well because it's kind of like crossing the river Styx uh, with this kind of, you know, drugged out hippie uh, uh, cabbie who's slightly older mm-hmm. Um and who's playing Petula Clark's Downtown in the cab, uh, which is a song that shows up a little bit later, uh, or much later, actually, after Susanna is playing it, actually, for, for uh, Polly uh, while she's in solitary. So we'll get to that. But it almost feels as though the cabbie is the only real therapist in the film. (laughs) You know, uh, you know, he, he says, he says, uh, oh, you know, everybody's, everybody's sad. Uh, Well, it's it's interesting because you, you talk about him as being sort of the guy who's going to take her across the river Styx. And, and there is a sense that he, he knows where he's taking her and that he's taken other people there before too, because he says, what did you do? 
And she goes, what? Yeah. And he says, uh, well, you look, you, you, I think he says, you seem normal or something. You see, you look normal, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. And then she says, well, I'm sad. And he goes, everybody's sad, right? right. It, it calls back to what I was saying before. And it's interesting because right before that, when she's, when she's with uh, the doctor, he gets up and she, to, to do something maybe with the mother, and she looks down at his book that's on the side table. Right, and that the, he's left conspicuously. Totally. And, uh, and it has a title. Patience, right. Yeah, the title, yeah, it's like his, his, uh, his legitimacy. And, and the title is something like The Inner Workings of the Mind. And then she turns it over and his name is Dr. Crumble, which I think is, is a very, that's a very deliberate little Easter egg in there that his name is Dr. Crumble. Um, right. And there's, there's a moment also in their exchange before he starts to get heavy with her, right, where he's just sort of being the empathic, seemingly empathic listener. And he says, explain it to me. No, go ahead, explain it to me. And she looks at him and says, explain to a doctor that the laws of physics can be suspended, right. that what goes up may not come down. Explain that time can move backwards and forwards and you don't have any control over it. And that's an interesting moment too, because you, I, I can see how, I can see myself as a teenager, a troubled teenager watching a film like this and hearing her say that and, and reading it in terms of like the normie world with all of their rules, all of their social rules and all of their limited notions about how reality functions are never going to understand the places right. that I go inside. And there, and you, and you're right. Mm-hmm. The thing is that you're never not right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like the teenager is actually um, uh, uh, a sage that way, right? Yeah, and, and so it's a kind I've... of insight that never really gets old. Uh, it's, yes, it's an insight that becomes um, probably a little bit more burnished, uh, more fuzzy over time. But that, but that essential quality of my internal life is uncommunicable to you. Yes, it's just an existential fact that that never really goes away. And so. So if, if we can be supported and related to as young people around that particular kind of well, almost archetypal perception, right? And, and, and felt sense in terms of the metaphor that that represents, because it's right. really about psychological complexity and emotional depth. It's not actually about magical thinking. It, right. it, it wears the clothing of magical thinker and, and thinking. And so you see with someone like Teal that it, it remains a literal kind of construct. Right. And, and, what, and what Susanna actually needs is for the psychiatrist or anybody, in fact, to say, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Your internal world is completely mysterious to me and to you. Mm-hmm. And it's just going to be that way for a long time. And yeah, but, but she doesn't get any reflection from anybody, nope. actually. Right. Nope. Yeah. yeah, except from the cabbie, except from the cabbie. Yeah, the cabbie gets A little it. bit. <laughs> the gets, you know, it reminds me of travel. I traveled through India for about three months with, with a very intense um, girlfriend when we were in our early 20s. Um, and I remember that. I, I mean, remember- let me just pause there for a moment. I mean, traveling through India is intense enough. Yeah. But, oh, but yeah. It, was a, it, was a, it was an intense relationship in your 20s. That's, yeah. that's, uh, that, that goes hard, man. No, this, this was a young woman who, who was insulin dependent, but loved the feeling when her blood sugar got so low that she started to feel like she was tripping because she was, she was convinced that it was evidence that her spiritual practice was paying off. No, it it was a lot. It was a lot. (laughs) Oh no. So were you, Oh my God. So you, you, were you actually helping her health wise, but also bringing her down to the material world and slowing her to, I mean, the climactic moment in that story is her actually going into a diabetic coma 
oh. in, a, in a hotel room in a town where we were the only two Westerners. I mean, it's, oh, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. yeah. And, and the th- I mean, that's an intense story for another time, but yeah, the thing, the reason why I'm thinking of it right now is that as we, as we were on our sort of spiritual quest for a few months, we would repeatedly say how the waiters in all of the restaurants we went to were the real spiritual teachers of our journey uh, because they yeah. would just, they would meet us with such empathy and such sort of, um, I don't know, there was a grace about how they interacted with us. And then of course, with further hindsight, I'm able to look back at that and go, yeah, we were the spiritual tourists on whom they relied for <laughs> some kind of good tip. So they were like, I'm going to play the enlightened waiter to, to you know, play, right. play on, your, uh, on your expectations. Yeah. Um, we get to in this back and forth uh, rhythm between her settling into the hospital and... Uh, you know, the, the precipitating events. There's all of these elisions between her, you know, talking to, Susanna talking to, for instance, the intake administrator at the hospital. And then that elides into her speaking to uh, her high school counselor. Miss Kaysen, you have the distinction of being the only senior at Springbrook not going on to college. May I ask what you plan to do? I plan to write. But what do you plan to do? Look, I'm not going to burn my bra or drop acid or go march on Washington. I just don't want to end up like my mother. Women today have more choices than that. No, they don't. Oh, ouch. No, they don't. Um, I loved, I loved everything about that scene, even just like hearing it without the, um, without the, without the visual, uh, the voices of the kids playing outside, distant and unapproachable. And here Susanna is, she's not a child anymore, but she's not going to go forward. What do you want to do? I want to write, but that's not really something that you can do. Also, what she's being told is that your internal life is not commodifiable, right? Well, you can't make yeah. money um, yeah. just by being you. And that is uh, also, I think, a kind of existential shock for any kind of sensitive person. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, so, I, know, I, I know this conversation well. I'm sure you know it well, too, from, from right. being a young person. Um, I wanted to be a professional musician, and I've had the conversation with so many adults as a teenager about, well you know, you need something to fall back on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that I did have that conversation many times. And part of me actually wonders whether uh, this life path digression that I took into six years of, of cult life that really kind of made my educational path unpursuable after that because then I was broke and then, you know, um, I didn't, I didn't have time. I didn't really, uh, I had to, I had to get gig working. Um, I don't know. It's almost as if those six years, if I'm really honest, those six years solved a kind of problem for me Hmm. of, uh, not 
having, not building some kind of skill to fall back on because I think deep in my heart, I, I don't know if I actually want that. I identify actually with Susanna sitting in that office and saying, I want to write and isn't that enough? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, um, we have all of these flashbacks. Um, the action, as I said, is bouncing back and forth between settling in and, and uh, the, the precipitating events. And then we meet her cohort, which functions, as I mentioned, as a kind of tableau of mid-century ungovernable archetypes. Now, uh, fantastic, fantastic characters. Before you get into describing these fantastic characters, I just want to say that I hadn't watched the film since it first came out, and I watched it again over the course of the last week, uh, almost twice altogether. Um, and as soon as I started watching it, I went, oh my God, I had no idea. And I, and I immediately thought of The Outsiders. Do you know mm -hmm. The Outsiders? Not so well. So The Outsiders is a, a, a film based on a book, uh, based a, a book by a female author who was very, very fascinated with young boys and young boys who did not have good parenting and lived in low-income neighborhoods and got involved in gangs and, and criminality and, and what the deeper sort of emotional needs were that they were trying to get met through through those relationships and those activities. Um, really good stuff. Uh, so I think three of her books were turned into films, uh, Outsiders, Rumblefish, and maybe Tex. Um, oh, right. Matt okay. Dillon is in, is in all of them. Um, and oh, so th man. the reason yeah. the Outsiders came to mind is because it's this, whoever was the character uh, casting director on that film hit a jackpot because it's yeah. it's this film from the I believe the early 80s that has uh, uh, Matt Dillon, Rob Lowe, Patrick Swayze, Emilio Estevez, um, C. Thomas Howell. Like it has all of these unknown boys at that time who would go on to be the, the, the big stars of their generation. And, right. I, and when I started watching this film, I went, wow, I had no idea that Elizabeth Moss was in this film. I had right. no idea that Brittany Murphy was in this film. I did not remember right. that Clea Duvall is in this film. And then there's Angelina Jolie, and then there's Winona Ryder. It's like, oh, this casting director also pulled together an amazing group of young women who would all go on to do you know, extraordinary things. Yeah, yeah, a real I, I, jackpots are the right word. So, okay, um, you've you've named uh, Moss, and and she plays Polly Clark, uh, who is disfigured from attempting to burn herself to death, uh, and has now regressed really into a kind of childlike state, um, which she maintains throughout the film, but also provides this kind of like beneficent commentary on things as as well. Uh, Cynthia is schizophrenic. Georgina is Susanna's roommate uh, who has been diagnosed as a pathological liar. And uh, she's fixated on the L. Frank Baum novels, the Wizard of Oz novels. And this is really a great choice in terms of uh, literary fandom because Baum is also writing on a, a symbolic or conspiratorial level. Uh, he's writing about... Um, you know, he's writing about American capitalism in the Oz series. Um, and so, so there's two things going on. She's very, very attached to the, to the childlike story, but then also I think there's a bit of an, a political Easter egg in there as well. Then we have Daisy Randone. Now who's the actor there? Uh, that's Brittany Murphy. Yeah. So that's Brittany Murphy who goes on to, to have a really lovely, but short career and dies really tragically. Oh, in real life. Yeah. 
and actually dies tragically after getting involved with a much, much older man who, who many feel exploited and abused her, though we don't know the full story. Uh, okay, so... So there's there's ghosts here too, right? Yeah. I, I suppose if you if you watch any movie from from more than ten years ago, you're watching ghosts, right? Yeah. But um, yeah, Daisy's father pays for a private room at the hospital and discharges her on the weekends to abuse her. Um, she self harms. Uh, she has obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, it's also implied that she's bulimic, uh, that she's addicted to laxatives. Uh, eating disorders are the primary issue faced by Janet, uh, who is also like super acerbic as a character, like in- incredibly funny. Uh, Susanna, we know, uh, has a kind of catch-all diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, and she's enthralled with the sociopath uh, Lisa Rowe, who is rebellious uh, but charismatic. Um, She's beautiful and alluring in a very sort of uh, angular and, uh, I don't know, volatile way. Uh, She encourages Susanna to stop taking her medication and to resist therapy. Uh, that's really important, of course, when we're thinking about uh, Teal Swan. And in their first dialogue, Lisa refers to the staff psychiatrist Melvin as their therapist. <laughs> I, you know, which is quite unfair, it seems. There's no evidence that Dr. Melvin is anything but bored and depressed himself, uh, either just, in the film or in the or in the book, by the way. Yeah, let me just interject here, too, to say that the, that the cast then is rounded out with Jared Leto, um, who, you know, is sort of unknown at that time, too. So another another casting coup. And in terms of my, my obsession with the outsiders, in, in a cast of old boys, you also have a young Diane Lane in The Outsiders. Oh, wow, amazing. Yeah. So, yeah, Lisa's framing and approach to the hospital is, I think, crucial when considering Teal's identification with Lisa which is something that, of course, Diana has told us, but um, we're also going to, I think, uh, massage and uh, broaden a little bit because I think Teal can probably identify with many of these characters. Um, but her framing of the institution is is important because, of course, Teal does a lot of work to discredit psychiatric care and medications. Um, and, of course, to be fair, uh, watching... Girl Interrupted makes us realize that she has a really good point in a lot of cases. Yeah, it's such a complex area. I mean, if this film is set in the late 60s, and that's Teal's knowledge base. Well, absolutely right. She has a really good point. But right. I mean, probably even today, psychiatric hospitals are likely pretty grim and not a place anyone really wants to be. No I think, though, you know, for Teal, the contested area of alternative healing and, and being a guru, it's more the domain in, in this kind of inflection of, of therapy and, and trauma as opposed to like maybe more serious psychiatric diagnoses. Although, you you know, if, if Teal really believed sincerely even one of their her really outrageous claims about aliens or paranormal powers, it, it might indicate indicate some side of tendency, some sort of tendency towards psychosis or delusion. Right. But there's something else that I think you're gesturing toward here, Matthew, which maybe has to do with how women have been treated 
historically within psychiatry and how that still persists today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to go back to your point on the yeah. grimness of contemporary institutions, um, you know, I have some experience with that. I have a, a family member who I once had to help as they navigated institutions. And it's really, it's, it's burned into my memory um, in a bunch of ways. Um, first of all, like how strange and alienating and precarious and aseptic uh, the ward felt as I, I had to go and deliver some personal effects. Um, the whole floor was cold. The, the, the person was shivering. They didn't have proper socks. They didn't know the people that they were with. Um, I mean, we're talking about often transient populations. They didn't know how they were going to be treated or whether the treatment was going to be helpful. And of course, as the family member, you don't either. Mm -hmm. Um, there were also these like very disorienting failures in basic dignity. Like I remember, um, bringing in the personal effects. I was told I could bring them in, but I had to make sure they had to be checked. They had to be examined for prohibited items, but there was no like desk or, or table set up for that. And so the orderly actually asked me in front of everybody in the ward to empty, to just dump this bag of personal belongings onto the floor. Holy shit. So that, so that, he could poke through them to make sure there was nothing that was, was, was not allowed. And it was, it was, um, the, the, the whole feeling of the place was that this is some strange kind of limbo outside of the world and yet extremely rule bound. Um, and I couldn't imagine how, you know, perhaps you could feel safe for a number of hours at a time while you were asleep or something like that. But the overall feeling was something that I recognize captured in Kaysen's book, which is, um, you know, what are we actually doing here? Like, what is this and how long is this going to last? Yeah, I mean, from that description and, and also from the book and the movie, I would say uh, if you were not... Um, feeling paranoid and uh, disconnected from from others before going in, you certainly would feel that way once you were there. And if you were already feeling that way, it would probably be made worse by that oh, kind yeah. of environment and experience and treatment and lack, as you said, lack of dignity, lack of interpersonal kind of uh, congruency, uh, lack of informed consent. Yeah, which is why there's a number of rapport and relationship building sequences in this film that I think are really, really crucial because they show that Susanna comes to view her fellow um, patients as, as being allies in this netherworld, uh, which is also something that I think it's a sentiment that I think we can see in some of these online spaces as well. Like we are, we are set apart. We found each other. Uh, we are the rejected. Uh, we are, we have been disposed of by society, but we have each other. And so there is a camaraderie that, that develops. Um, and, uh, but to your point about the history of, <laughs> I mean, the treatment of women in psychiatry, it's like, it's it, an enormous topic. Uh, it, just enormous topic. I'm making my way at the moment through a really beautiful book by uh, Lisa Apinionese. It's called uh, Mad, Bad, and Sad Women and the Mind Doctors. And she's done this enormous study um, 
about really the, the pathologization of gendered responses to hierarchies of power through history. Uh, and also, um, how the treatment of psychiatric patients, but especially women, from way before Freud, uh, is really a, a story of of people being treated as as vessels or bellwethers for various forms of cultural malaise. And I just want to read this part from the the intro. Um, so Pinyanese writes, in one of his pithy throwaway remarks, the philosopher Ian Hacking noted, quote, in every generation, there are quite firm rules on how to behave when you are crazy. Anthropologists have long charted the different expressions of madness and the forms cure may take in unfamiliar cultures, nor are modern cultures, however globalized, altogether homogenous when where disorder is in question. A BBC program about Japan where the population is aging recently explored a prevalent and debilitating form of stress characterized by medics as retired husband syndrome, an illness that could turn a wife's repressed worry about a salaryman husband's imminent return to the home where habits of obedience and servitude would have to be reinforced into a round of skin rashes, ulcers, asthma, and high blood pressure. As I was amassing material for this book... I realized that symptoms and diagnoses in any given period played into one another in the kind of collaborative work that all doctoring inevitably entails. Often enough, extreme expressions of the culture's malaise, symptoms and disorders mirrored the time's order, the worries, limits, border problems, and fears. Anorexia, first named in the latter part of the 19th century, is usually an illness of plenty, not of famine, as depression is one of times of peace and prosperity, not of war. It is perhaps no surprise that an age in which the sum of information available in any given minute is larger than it has ever been in history should find a condition in which attention is at a deficit. This is not a simple matter of mind doctors spotting, shaping, naming in a word, diagnosing, or even suggesting an illness, although all that happens too. People, and it is people who become patients, are not utterly passive. We are talking here of mental or psychic illness and, mad or sane, Patients are as susceptible to knowledge as doctors and often know how to hide from or use it. So if we go to Hacking's statement that there are quite firm rules on how to behave when you are crazy in any given time, and the suggestion is that those rules are dictated in part by the cultural zeitgeist, I mean... What are we talking about? What can the presentations of satanic ritual abuse and false memory syndrome tell us about how Teal Swan acts as a, as a conduit for the culture of the 1980s and 1990s? I mean, it's, you know, it's also fascinating and there's, there's a lot of different angles on, on everything that Ian Hacking was just saying as you were quoting, but in terms of the, the satanic panic and all of this false memory syndrome stuff, I mean, I really, I perceive it through my own particular, um, preoccupations as actually a lack of valuing of the inner life, a, a cultural kind of, um, illiteracy around not only emotions, but also uh, symbolism and metaphor, um, an inability to understand that the most primordial kind of fears that we have that get outpictured as things like Satan and demons, um, that, that they're, they're, they're part of a, a kind of very deep um, 
phenomenon that's that's present in all human beings that is profoundly symbolic like it, it it's 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 about something right but it's not it's not literally about satan like, you know um so so to, to have this massive cultural moment in which in which there's this um kind of upwelling of all of this christian um uh, uh panic is, is, is to me profoundly indicative of just a, a lack of, of psychological depth and, and mythopoetic depth. And then you add to that, that the, the panic takes this additional turn, which is that even if you don't believe in Satan, you can come to believe that there are evil people out there who are doing real things to real children in the name of Satan. And so that becomes really terrifying. To the extent that both SRA and false memory syndrome really depend upon the fragility of memory, mm -hmm. it seems to me that they are also conditions of an ahistorical era. Mm. In the sense that, you know, w we go through the 70s and 80s and 90s and experience a an explosion and proliferation of media, especially news media, what is happening, what has happened, what terrible things are happening both in Vietnam or in our neighborhood. And there, and oh, and also what happened during the second world war? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, what really happened at My Lai? Mm -hmm. uh, what really happened, um, in, in uh, uh, Dresden, you know, Dresden, exactly. And, and so in a, in a, in an age, I think, I think Apanyanezi points at it with, it's not surprising that, that a condition of the deficit of attention arises in an age in which there is too much to pay attention to. Mm. It's not surprising to me that disorders involving the sort of angst of memory uh, arise in a period in which people are both trying to remember things and forget things at the same time, mm -hmm. like in very major ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and then there's also the piece of like, well, what has been hidden? What are you not remembering because you've been sort of uh, uh, hypnotized into into forgetting? So there's there's there are there are clues here that there's symbolic meaning going on in all of this as well. And I want to just add, you know, from my perspective, that I think all of this is very very rich uh, territory. Um, and at the same time, there are you know genetic, uh, organic, uh, yeah, neurobiological. Right. You know, there are impacts that trauma have on how our brains develop at different stages, and there there are there are ways that we can track um, a lot of diagnoses to to a more kind of material, um, uh, at least reference point, if not cause. Right. Well, you know, I think it's absolutely true that we're going to go to two episodes here with this because we're only a small <laughs> part of the way through the movie. But let's actually get to the point where uh, in one of these uh, rapport building, team building scenes, the patients uh, raid at in the middle of the night the offices of the 
imperious Dr. Wick, uh, who we're going to see in the next episode. So they've, they've gotten out of bed. They, they didn't take their sleep medication. This, they didn't go so far as to drug nurse McWinnie this time, but, um, they did get out. And I think, did they go bowling yeah. uh, in this particular scene <laughs> downstairs? There's a fucking bowling alley in the basement of the, I don't even know how that happens, um, or why that's there. Yeah. But, uh, they wind up, they wind up breaking into the, 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 the head psychiatrist's office and they grab their files so that they can read what's being written about them. Hmm. Lisa Rose. <laughs> Highs and lows increasingly severe. Controlling relationships with patients. No appreciable response to meds. No remission observed. That was before you ran away. We are very rare, and we are mostly men. Lisa thinks she's hot shit because she's a sociopath. I'm a sociopath. No, you're a dyke. Borderline personality disorder. An instability of self-image, relationships, and mood. Uncertainty about goals, impulsive in activities that are self-damaging, such as casual sex. I like that. Social contrariness and a generally pessimistic attitude are often observed. Oh, that's me. That's everybody. I mean, what kind of sex isn't casual? They mean promiscuous. I'm not promiscuous. Uh, it's so much going on there. So there's that killer quote uh, where where uh, Lisa is um, is quoting. It sounds like like from memory mm-hmm. uh, a definition. For sociopaths, we are very rare and we are mostly men. Which is a point of pride. And, and also just to underline what you were saying before here, right? They are, they're looking behind the curtain. They're looking yeah. at what those who have power over them have categorized them as being and getting yeah and sometimes it's resonant and sometimes Mm -hmm. it's not i mean Kaysen reads her description of borderline personality disorder and says oh that's me because it sounds resonant but it sounds resonant in the same way that a fucking cold reading sounds (laughs) resonant doesn't it (laughs) it's your astrological sign just like just throwing (laughs) shit at the wall like just uh just a uh just sort of a grab bag of stuff here's apanese on um borderline personality disorder the category neither quite matters nor altogether bad is another diagnostic dump under the precision until the precisions of recent dsms it designated an individual whom traditional therapies had found at all found it all but impossible to treat though they often asked for treatment or were assigned to it by social agencies according to the nimh two percent of american adults most of them women are borderlines emotionally unstable they may attempt to seduce manipulate attack the therapist or simply leave the treatment they have a pattern of rapid emotional fluctuation as well as shifting aspirations, jobs, and relationships. They account in America for some 20% of psychiatric hospitalizations, often because of suicide attempts or threats. In the early days of the women's movement, the analytic characterization of borderlines was derided. It was understood in parallel with hysteria as a controlling classification, a label to be applied to any woman who wouldn't conform from Dora Uh, to Marilyn Monroe. Wildness, desire, extreme language, excessive, impulsive, indeed rebellious behavior were simply not allowed into the feminine repertoire, and so its expressions were categorized as mad, morally insane, historical, hysterical, and borderline. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's intense. I think that's a good place to uh, leave it. Um, and we will get to the rest of the movie, including we are finishing up in Dr. Wick's office. I think the opening scene that we have to tackle next time is Dr. Wick's incredible dialogue with Susanna Kaysen. Uh, and so we'll open next episode with that. What do you say? All right. That's a really good place to transition. 